So I think we can uh, touch upon that issue that we had raised in the money, Arun. India and America. Yes, mm. please. Yes, wonderful. <coughs> We're going to throw in Russia a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> she has already commented. Yeah. You're against <laughs> them. No, but that's smelly. Well, basically, every nation has its own uh, own soul, own contribution, own role, and its own destiny. So this is the broad background. Yes, I'm going to Russia. Oh, you are. Okay, then that's Russia. That's why I said it. Three weeks. Yeah. Huh? Three weeks. Yeah. Where? You're going to spend three weeks there. No, I'm going after three weeks. Oh, you're going after three weeks. You're only there for a week or so. Primarily there. Hmm? Yeah, oh. primarily to St. Petersburg. Yeah. And then I think the conference site this year is different from the previous one. It is, But yes. Are you going somewhere? Suburbs. Suburbs. Uh, Arkady is a guy who's got this new development. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Anyway, so it's, uh, you can talk to him mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. So, so there's some development. You know, something very interesting that at one point the mother when she saw India continuing to be in a state of tamas, fallen, lying down, with a mass of obscurity, uh, a total distortion of the deep spiritual truths that it still at some level contains and resonates with. She foresaw that to fulfill the divine design, there was possibility even of an Indian uh, Indian nation being annexed by another foreign country. She foresaw that. And she saw that, well, who could come in? At one time, she foresaw China trying to intrude into India, and she said it would be dangerous and disastrous mm-hmm. because it would mean they would do everything to finish the whole spiritual impulse because though intellectually they are very sharp, but psychically there is hardly anything here. Uh, she also spoke about uh, the Chinese being descendants from the moon, mm-hmm. when the moon grew cold and the whole uh, civilization came here. Now, of course, they are finding evidence of uh, probably water on moon and possibly there may have been life at some point of time. And so the psychic uh, aspect is not there and though it has developed due to contamination with the earth that happens uh, but still it's very different from uh, that sensitivity of earthly creatures that is missing so this was one part and she saw that I see them everywhere I see them even coming to my room and we don't want mm. very clearly she says we don't want them we don't want <laughs> I mean I have never seen mother say with such uh, yeah. almost force Then she says, what is the other possibility to shake up India and make it rise up to, you know, wake up out of its slumber? She says, what if the Russians come in? You know, she is talking about that. She says, but it will be of no benefit to either of them because Russians are mystics by their nature. It's a great tribute she paid to Russia. See, the Russians have mysticism in their very blood. And therefore, if they come, it won't help either India or the Russians. <laughs> Because 
both have mystic tendencies and they will come little bit of mysticism here and there but so the weak spot of india has been matter material life still in a total disorganized state so she says what if the americans come in actually this is a possibility which shirobindo has also foreseen in the human cycle that there may come a time when there would be only one single uh, nation which may have a kind of hegemony over all others and he foresaw an american domination over the rest of the world hmm. yes and then he speaks about that leading to a state of chaos and out of that chaos anarchy seeds of a new creation coming up which means a total overhauling total revamping of the whole system i mean something very interestingly with uh, mr modi is speaking about in fact he is speaking about totally new cities to be built up and total revamping of the system so she saw in the process a possibility of an american domination and she says it will be good for both but the problem would be that if americans come in it would mean a lot of humiliation lot of pain lot of struggle for the indian people and she didn't want that because obviously after all domination is domination and subjection is never a good thing so those he saw that it's going to do good to both so at one level the coming together of uh, two diverse poles because americans will acquire a deeper spiritual and psychic uh, light and india will acquire a material organization probably a proper material organization so she foresaw that but she also foresaw it would mean once again because once it comes it won't be like 10 years 50 years <laughs> another couple of centuries because things won't uh, work so easily so in that context she says that these two countries if they come together it will be really wonderful for the new creation because india brings with it the light of a spiritual knowledge which yet can liberate humanity it has that power the potency mm. whereas america brings solid material power not just at the level of money money is one expression of that in fact swami vivekananda had when he had come here he told the americans give money to india they don't need uh, uh, you know some, you don't have to send missionaries to convert them <laughs> they are quite capable they have their spiritual knowledge you get spiritual knowledge from there but give wealth in return so what she foresaw that the kind of collaboration america has solid material power at many levels it has and this material power is not just a brute material power this contains within it a great potential because unlike every other country at one level i mean america has its past if we connect it to the uh, way of civilization or to the western migration yet it's a breakaway nation people broke away from you know wherever they were and came as settlers so this nation in a certain sense is open to new things by the very fact this is a breakaway nation it doesn't, doesn't carry a baggage and given that and the tremendous material potential both things are needed for the new creation it's not enough that we have inner realizations but materially one is weak one cannot you know build anything so that's how she foresaw but she also saw and she said at least uh, almost till towards uh, late 60s and maybe early 70 or no it's late 60s 
She said, however, um, America is still under a great domination of the adverse forces. They are not yet able to see that, look, how we can contribute to the new world. Though one can see very clearly that the, when the supramental descended, one of the countries which responded very fast, amazingly, was America. The whole movement that came, flower children and revolt and... Six, early 60s. Early 60s. And Definitely. we know how when the hippie movement took place and some of these hippies came to ashram, course you would be knowing perhaps better and how people were all taken aback because uh, during those days ashram was uh, uh, you know a lot more strict in terms of its understanding uh, dealing with people not mother but the ashram <laughs> the, the average person there I mean uh, just as an aside once in the playground one of the French songs or some other song was played which uh, literally meant um, Oh, we bid you bye-bye. You know, the soldiers are telling their wives. It's a parting song. And suddenly it was played during the meditation in the ashram, uh, in the playground. And a uh, lot of people became very uncomfortable. Rishabh Chand, all these people wrote to mother. Uh, you know, what's happening? And, you know, we are going down. And how can such a song be played? <laughs> and mother wrote back, what was wrong with that song? What was wrong with it? I mean, it is a song which was in this context is perfectly fine. I mean, that's the mother's way. Even when the movie Blue Lagoon was shown. So, you know, you know, there are a couple yes. of scenes, absolutely nude scenes. Yes. Brother and sister, they have fallen in love with each other. It's a movie which shows, it's a very deep movie at, I mean, mm -hmm. at, at many levels. But again, people were very, uh, how could such a movie be shown in the ashram? And again, mother said, it was a wonderful movie. I didn't find anything wrong about it. I didn't feel that anything was obscene and, you know, whatever was shown was in a certain connection. So, mother is one, you know, she is infinite. But uh, an average ashram inmate came with a preconceived notion of yoga and, you know, hard is the path, sharp is the razor sage and all mm -hmm. those notions one carries, which has its truth. But not in the sense we understand it in terms of externalities. So, when the hippies came, there was a big issue about, you know, they don't take care of the body, the long hairs and, you know, just no social norms, nothing. So, but mother saw in them a possibility and she remarks barbarians of the new world. Yes. New world, not, yes. you know. Yes. And, you know, it, this phrase has very deep meaning. When I was reading Shurbindo, when he talks about, um, in Kali Yuga, it is said that there is, there is a, there is a Sanskrit word for it, Kali Varja. Varja means to eliminate. So Kali Varja, Kali Yuga is meant when uh, from the human consciousness all that is dark is eliminated. It broken. So, you know, many things get broken. So when people think from Kali Yuga there is a Satyu, they feel that, you know, in Kali Yuga they see children don't obey the parent, they do this and all kinds of things. So they will go away. And Satyu, again, once again, all those old things will return. So Shurbindu says, Pandits are right when they talk about Kali Varja. But they are wrong when they think that only few things will go away. And he says, everything will go away, even the best as much as the worst. And it reminds us of Mahabharata, like Bhishma, Karna, they were mm. magnificent uh, 
personalities of that era who could imagine and yet they had to go everything had to go so that a new ground can be created and shubhendra has spoken about it several places but essentially when she speaks about barbarians of the new world means the old world is completely crashed with america the advantage is there is very little of that old world baggage and therefore there is a possibility of this new thing coming up even if it holds as a fashion it can always take up roots and continue further so she in pagist house because you know nobody would be willing to accommodate despite mothers <laughs> so in pagist house one of the reasons why pagist house came up was so that the hippies who come they could be accommodated there it's, it's, i was accommodated there well, <laughs> <laughs> well hippies and uh, uh, well and others all who are open but then for mother it was not a negative sense it was a negative sense for you know yeah. others and she was even made to hear some notes of the beatles and then yeah it's all there and she says oh this particular note this is uh, this is new this is coming from something nice so it's there you know about yes. you know, you're talking about the new music so she had foreseen in america a great possibility to open to new things because the process of destruction took a sudden like a storm the, the american youth reacted to start with they had reacted even 300 years back uh, you know as settlers against the queen and all that started like that and this revolt went on now this revolt is a very interesting phenomena actually if you go to the very origin you know why in spite of that america is open to the adverse forces so um, to be very honest and frank uh, you know the beings who revolted and left the state of divinity that was one way to understand the asura who went further because he wanted to create his own sense of the divine value so they had not revolted blindly i mean it was a blind revolt but they revolted because they couldn't understand the totality of creation and the wisdom which is in built in it and uh, you well they wanted justice but justice as human beings would conceive it so even now you see the whole um, thing about america freedom liberty is a very big thing it's so important stressed upon but this liberty the way it is conceived in the american context can never lead to true liberty it will lead to a chaos and increasing it's a step towards the true at least it allows you to explore uh, whoever wants to explore is free to explore but if you stop that well providing this liberty is enough no there is a greater liberty the spiritual liberty now paradoxically spiritual liberty would mean disciplining the physical and the vital which is like a paradox whereas normally what liberty is understood as well i have right to express myself the way i want to so this is one paradox yeah. the second paradox is individuality strong stress on individuality again it is an inversion of something true individuality is a very sacred thing i mean the very fact jivatmas are created and uh, divine is a, f- a fiercely individualistic person that's why there are so many paths he allows everyone to explore his own path but at the same time there is a false individuality that is the individuality of the ego self and the desire self so here again we see that there is a very great stress in america on individual individualism but uh, in the indian context individuality means bringing out the true soul through sadharma and sabhava so america can benefit a lot its aspirations which are right now mixed up with the vital uh, physical layers can take a totally new understanding and new meaning and new sense 
by the contact with the Indian civilization. And I suppose this process has started. Though the reverse did not start, but India's coming to America with that light which can carry, this process started as early as Swami Vivekananda. And then we know a host of people who came here. Amazingly, that of all the places, they found the American soil. I mean, Prabhupada, um, then uh, that LA center, uh, Swami Yogadananda. So many have come, one after another, and uh, implanting something or the other in this soil. So this soil has been nourished spiritually and continues to be nourished. What is the other part of the story, other side of the story where America has to give wealth so that India can create structures which are, you know, in line, in tune with the new creation. I think that is only a few persons like you, <laughs> Sarkey, or few persons who are doing it, but at a national level, it's, it's not happened. At a national level, because of the grip of the adverse forces, you know, the whole money goes into either Pakistan or Afghanistan and yeah. it ends up back because it's almost like a karmic reaction which is a great paradox <laughs> because everybody with little sense can see I mean okay there is a short term vital interest that's different that okay you need to Pakistan will be easily under your position or so the nation thinks and it can be a base for uh, you know controlling Asia but then Though India cannot be controlled the way Pakistan is, yet it can be a very wonderful ally, very natural ally. So this is something which time to time this thought has come. Kennedy had this thought. And um, there is a well-known story that during the time when Russia, uh, Chinese invasion took place. So during the Chinese invasion, oh, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, who yeah. was this uh, person? Arun Nehru, I think. Uh, anyways, the ambassador of India to US. Um, Nehru told him that ask for help. So he goes to Kennedy and um, Kennedy asked him that, okay, how far the troops have moved in? So he said, uh, I'm afraid. I mean, he didn't have a very clear idea. He said, okay, doesn't matter. Asked his CIA chief and he rolled the map and showed exactly where the forces were. <laughs> so he was a bit embarrassed. He, in fact, he said, I have never been posted to Northeast, all that, you know, oh. typical. <laughs> I don't really know exactly in this my information. <laughs> so he, okay, doesn't matter. So he rolled the map. This story has been told to me by a person who heard it directly from the ambassador. Oh. So I'm telling you the, you know, it's also documented, but um, I'm telling you right from. So he said the map was rolled and he felt very embarrassed to start with. And uh, then Kennedy told him that, uh, you see, uh, one Indian showed you the way of, you know, towards freedom, referring to Gandhi. But another Indian showed you the way towards mastery and you didn't listen to him. So he was, which Indian now they are talking about? <laughs> Other than Gandhi, there is no Indian <laughs> worth mention. So he said, oh, you don't know. He pulled out a book and showed about yes. the threat uh, from Red China through Tibet mm -hmm. to India. And what book it was? The Human Cycle. And sure he kept window. it on his desk too. Ah, Shurabindu. Sure and he says that, look, uh, this was written two years back and you didn't listen. So he said, you know, he was all disoriented. The meeting took place, I believe, very early hours of morning around 3, 3.30. So as such, you know, totally disoriented what's happening. So then he, he said, you know, fumbled that, look, I mean, this is not two years back. <laughs> this was written way back. 
Shubhinder had foreseen this book has been printed in 50 with that postscript chapter which Shubhinder had added in 49. Then, you know, he was also amazed, but then that part of the conversation stopped there. Shubhinder had foreseen this threat and Kennedy then made a remark, well, anyways, we'll help you after all a democracy. So Kennedy was a very good instrument who could have really aligned but then he died and mother spoke about his death that it was an occult death. Yes, Very absolutely. clearly she said it was an occult death. And that also shows how human weaknesses count for very little when it comes to being an instrument of the divine. Both Churchill and Kennedy were full of human weaknesses. Mm. I mean, if you read their lives yeah. and yet they were very good instruments. Instruments treasured by the divine. So, you know, our understanding of moral notions and all this is so small and so little. So, coming together, I think will take place not so much at the governmental level now, but I mean, it has to take place at some point. But at another level, an exchange and interchange has started. And I feel Indians coming to America, and I am very glad now there is an opening of visa further, and settling here has its own deep purpose. And very interestingly, they are on both the coasts. <laughs> yes. Yes. As if you know, this settlement is bringing a kind of a fresh uh, and deep, profound spiritual understanding to the people here and they can be a very good bridge. But again, how I see it, I am just sharing, you know, the way I have seen. Uh, Shubindo, 100 years back, says in the synthesis, Indian yoga is one of those powers which is going to be, you know, uh, very useful, the sum total of humanity. But for that, India has to first discover itself, its own yoga. That is where I, I feel a bit uh, sad that again we have the same Swamiji's, the same approach, the same uh, otherworldliness, the same, you know... Uh, so many people I see, even within the Indian communities, same temple, the same Pandit will come, he will have a Bhagavad Sapta. And you know, people feel this is what means to connect with India. But there is no deep engagement with the Indian thought, no serious understanding of what really Indian spirituality is. And if that can happen, because they are two sides of the one coin. If India continues to remain at the level of the religion, it will never be accepted by America because, you know, religion has been discarded by the new world consciousness. You have to bring out that truth from within it, the spiritual truth. So this is where the balance hangs. On one side, India or the Indians have to rediscover their yoga, that great inheritance, and bring, out, bring it out of the shroud of mm. mass of, you know, dead externalities and, uh, you know, belief systems and rituals, rituals and... Yeah. Uh, you know, books where they read without even knowing the source, you'll be amazed, you know, people talk, often you will hear uh, karma and this and that, fasting and this uh, book and that book. If you ask, ask them, I have done this because, uh, I mean, fortunately I can do it with the kind of background and having read every possible scripture, uh, Indian and otherwise, okay, okay, where is it written? They don't know. So I ask them, is it in the Vedas? <laughs> no, probably... Many don't know that what is there in the Vedas. At the most, they will be able to tell you that there are four Vedas, nothing beyond it. What really is there in the Rig Vedas, for instance? I'm not talking of the depth, just the substance. 
What is there in the Rig Veda? What is there in the Yajur Veda? What is there in the Sam Veda? What are Riks? What are Mandalas? What are Samhitas? I mean, these are actual... That poetry of the Vedas is arranged like that, you know. Um, every mandala is, for instance, every mantra that forms a rik. Then you have a mandala which is a movement. Every samhita is written by a particular rishi. That's how. And the Rig Vedas largely are about the fire. Yajur Veda about the yagna, which is which will later develop into the path of works. Samveda about prayers. They are hymns which are, you know, connected with various uh, deities. Now. Atharveda about all the occult process. So they don't know. Then you ask about Upanishads. Again, no clue. No clue what the Upanishads are. You ask, okay, forget about that. You talk about the Gita, little bit, few slokas here and there. Puranas, some stories here and there. So this is where the sad part is that we want uh, that culture which has got into the Indian psyche of quick results, uh, you know, KFC like that. So Swamiji's mm. come. And they give you a, you know, two-day crash course in Nirvana or five-day, you know, um, sudden awakening of Kundalini. Well, it's not like that. I mean, if it was so simple, Mother and Shurabindu spent decades and decades with their physical presence, disciples like asking questions after questions and they're clarifying it because it's a path, it's a journey, it's a deep engagement, it's a serious pursuit all through life. So I think that's where there is a need for the Indian mind to rub a lot of its past ashes so that the fire that is buried can really come up. It's buried under a lot of ashes. And if it springs up, America will be get touched very fast hmm. because it's a nation which is basically ready. It's looking for a new light. But when it comes, it's like again another religion. So again it falls back to Christianity and Hinduism. That's the end of the story because obviously, <laughs> I mean, each religion says mine is superior and each has its own nostrum and its own. It doesn't help. What about uh, conversion by Christians of Indians? I hear it's going on at a tremendous rate. Yeah. It's not really conversion. It's basically money going the wrong way, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the best part is you can really never convert anyone. Well, it, it's, it's, see, I'll tell you what, it's a meaningless thing. The very effort is so much superficial and absurd. Honestly, if you ask me, it doesn't worry me at all. I have studied in a convent school where every morning we used to say this prayer, which is a lovely prayer at one level, except that I had one problem with it, that when you say, Our Father, Thou art in heaven, all that is fine, but you know, um, forgive us uh, so you know why because we also forgive others you know that part used to hit me Ki, how can you know we be an example and, and the idea of forcibly making you do a prayer whether he, Hindu prayer or a Christian prayer used to be you know so they try but look what happens mass of humanity whether it adopts to Christianity, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism doesn't do it for any deep engagement with truths. Mm. Basically, people don't mind changing their names because they get a little money. They get a chance. Like a lot of people, like Muslims, they know that they, get, they have a chance to go to Dubai if they have, you know. Then if you are a Christian, you have a lot of benefits. There are some colleges like Velour, Christian Medical College. Openly, there is a quota for Christians. And nobody contests it. It should not be. Because there is no college in India, medical college, or engineering college, or any college where there is a quota for Hindus. 
Quota for Hindus. But there is a medical college and one of the best medical colleges, Christian medical college, where there is a quota for Christians. So if you are a Christian, there is an open... Now, there are subtle biases everywhere. Like there are institutes where doctors are taken based on their religion. But here I am telling you, officially it is there. And it's declared that, you know, only 2% seats are for the general. Mm-hmm. Others are for Christians. And people just, there is a blind acceptance of it. Now, it doesn't bother me because this mass of humanity, which is changing religion as it, you know, changes its dress for its own convenience, is an absurdity. I mean, it, it really doesn't matter. What matters are those true people who regardless of their religion, regardless of that, they carry that spiritual fire and they are everywhere. So, but this effort is there, very unfortunate. If you ask me, should it be there? Certainly not. It's a, it's a, it, it doesn't make sense at all. But we also have to understand part of the reason for it. See, all religions are dying everywhere. If Hinduism's rituals have taken long, it's only because it stands on a very wide base. But even there, the young generation is not accepting all this nonsense about fasting and, you know, when women have periods, they cannot enter into the um, temples and also, you know, all this caste system. But uh, the other advantage of Hinduism, it reinvents itself. So, you know, you'll always have a number of masters, good or bad is irrelevant. So, ultimately, people go to them and whatever the master says, they just accept it and that becomes the Shastra. So, it's a plus side. So that's why in Hinduism there is a tendency towards a constant um, we'll open essays divine and human and essays in philosophy and yoga. There is a tendency to reinvent itself which is unfortunately not there though in Christianity there have been some very good efforts like for instance um, um, you know um, Thomas what was that very Thomas famous book Kempis. Imitation of Christ yeah. the lovely Thomas book Kempis. Thomas Kempis Lovely book. I mean, there have been efforts to try to uh, bring in the Christian yoga. Now, this word has also come up, Christian yoga, which basically would mean there is a path to unite with the divine. Initially, it will be filled with all kinds of, you know, uh, mixtures. But essentially, if you go to the kernel, well, there are people who would eventually come to accept that there is a path, path towards the divine, and this is one of them. And if one can follow it, it's fine. It's for oneself. The problem comes when you try to impose it on others and say others should also follow. But don't you feel that uh, Christianity is appealing to the poorest people and yeah. throwing money at them? Exactly. Them? So it's not really Christianity which is appealing. It's money which is appealing. It's money which is appealing. And it's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I was very happy to hear what Mr. Modi said. You know, when Mr. Modi uh, made a statement, which is a very interesting statement, he said, uh, you know, Hindus uh, are welcome to be, uh, to come back if they want to come back and be part of the country. So he was asked, it was not Mr. Modi, but in the manifesto. So one of the interviewers asked him, what do you mean by Hindus? He said, to me, Hindus are not a religious domination. It is purely a way of life. Then he asked, you mean even Christians? He said, yes. Anybody who has adopted a certain way of life, which is in the line of Sanatan Dharma, where you are not trying to convert, preach, and you know, you are dogmatically asserting, he is welcome because this is a land for that. And it was very beautiful that he actually redefined Hinduism in the way it originally was. Sanatan Dharma. So that's wonderful. He says, yes, you are welcome. You come. I mean, Because many people were opposed to that idea of 
Hinduism again. Yes, exactly. As but a religion. Absolutely. And it cannot be. See, in Hinduism, there is a corrective, natural corrective. Take for instance, now people go to Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. So now, uh, if they go and ask him that, um, uh, uh, Guruji, should we, uh, you know, um, uh, do this or don't do this? Uh, in the Shastra, it is written that you shouldn't do this. Now, if Guruji says, no, no, you can do this. So that becomes the word. Now, each guru who comes in a certain time-space context embodies that time-space context. I am not right now talking about the greatness of a particular guru or comparing him with any other guru, Mm -hmm. not that. But I am just saying that the beauty of Hinduism, why there is a natural corrective. Now, let's say when Ravi Shankarji comes or after 100 years another guru comes or many gurus come. And I don't regard, as I said on the first day, Shurabindo among the gurus. He is an avatar, which is a different category altogether, who will shape the gurus of the future. Already one can see that. Yes. That the modern gurus are more in line automatically with the, uh, you know, yuga dharma which Shurabindo has given, which is a wonderful thing. So, leave aside Shurabindo, but the gurus who will come, they will naturally be born in the age of iPad and uh, Facebook. Yeah. So, they will turn it towards... As part of the yogic journey. Now this was asked. Why I am saying is recently uh, he was asked um, uh, our Sh- Ravi Shankarji on, on the television. Uh, somebody asked him what do you feel about Facebook and internet and all that. He said nothing wrong with it. It is good. Uh, Twitter is good. Only thing is you must know how to uh, use it and handle it. Now he has made uh, Sanatan Dharma contextual as far as this aspect goes. So tomorrow somebody is bound to ask whether abortions and uh, gay marriages and you know are okay or not. And I'm sure the gurus will come up with contextual things, not confined only to the shastra, where many of these things are not even mentioned. That's one. Second is Hinduism to start with was very wide based. If we look at the whole, uh, that's another way of a natural corrective. I have given talks sometimes to these. Uh, you know, very even hardcore Hindu organization. <laughs> Though the hardest core are very, yeah, are very soft, uh, subtle. And I've talked about, you know, women choosing their husbands for marriage. So, you know, initially, you know, they little bit, I said, look, uh, take the story of Savitri, take the story of Sita. These yeah. were all swimwear. Yeah. So why do you feel so much disturbed when your own daughter chooses somebody to get married? Yeah, you discuss with her, you talk to her. Ask her, you know, the ifs, buts, you have a right to do that. But don't say that she is going against the tenets of Hinduism. Because there is in the very stories, this very wide conception, like Shiva and, uh, you know, again asceticism, Shiva is ascetic of the ascetics. And he is twice married. Now, how do you connect? (laughs) It would scandalize. So, if you go back to the root Hinduism, it is by its nature very vast. But ritualism came up because it was so vast that human beings can't conceive. So, if you that that's one problem with people with you know when they read Shurabindu, they want an easy to do immediate thing. Yeah. Now Shurabindu doesn't give that; he takes you to that vastness and says, "Come, come into this ocean." And all true gurus have done this. You know, when Swami Vivekananda was asked when he gave a lecture in uh, London, I was reading this book, The Master, as I saw him, Sister Nivedita. He says, "When Swamiji came, and you know, just about." and odd persons, we can't imagine, you know, that was in a private house and they kept asking Swamiji, um, 
tell, tell us how to do this. Tell, tell me how do I meditate. Tell me. He said, I am not here to do that. Not here to give you any of these. I am here to inspire and awaken you. And that's what is necessary because then you will walk the path. Yeah. The divine is there to lead us. Now, by its nature, but because human mind cannot conceive this vastness or is afraid of it, because it has to lose many things, it wants to stick to its nostrums. And uh, there is a whole uh, on Hindu reforms, oh, okay. reforms Social in reform. Hinduism or reforms in Hinduism. Or you can see in the title, main Social title, reform. yes, Social reforms. Whenever you get the time, can yeah. you talk? more about the stuff you just spoke earlier about the rituals like yeah. you're saying and I second the thought that people in my generation the Hindus growing up in India I also born and raised in India yeah they don't believe much in all of these uh, rituals the fasting and all the other stuff you know certain days you fast and certain days you do some stuff yes and the thing is uh, they really don't know the roots yes. of where they come from why it's done yes it's being taught by their parents the previous generation that you do this you know the I problem. No, and that's why most of my friends, my generation, they say it's all uh, it's no good. Exactly. Waste I, time, but it's in Catholicism. No, no, I, you also. know the problem. You know, I have talked about it several times too. Uh, you know, I, I'll give you a very, very real thing. Not, not just, uh, I've been talking about these things. And whenever I go, take for instance, I come to US and I interact with mainly the background Hindu community. And when they hear these things, they all say, oh, this was nice. Uh, talk to the, you know, children and all. So I tell them, all right, I am fine with it. I am coming anyways. You can arrange for a talk. But it never gets arranged. Hmm. And I suspect <laughs> there is a fear among the parents that, you know. Lose the identity. Yes. You know, because not realizing that, you know, there they is a fear. Oh, oh my God. Maybe it is uh, too vast. Uh, you know, maybe it's better that uh, they are following something, let them follow. Compelling people to follow. And so many times I have told them, don't do this because this is harmful. Not only that, it is uh, not good or people are reacting to it. It is harmful because you, you are killing the spirit. And then naturally children, you know, see what happened in Europe. Uh, coming back to Christianity, why, uh, you know, the conversions became heavy. Right. The same wave of destru destruction of religion went through Europe also. Now, in Europe, religion actually practically has gone. You know, if you really look at the churches, they are empty. This is a fact. So now... So tourists, Chinese tourists. Yeah, yeah tourists go and visit. No, so now what do... What do so, so this, this the Pope felt very threatened and... You know, all like, you know, Pope or the Mahamandaleshwar in India, it's all the same thing. So they want, they feel this is religion and this is destroyed. So they, they did a very stupid thing, trying to convert in lands where they felt, okay, we have not yet outreached there, let's try it. What was necessary was to liberate the spiritual side of Christianity and give it to the youth. Now you see what happens when you don't do that. This was not done. Look at the result. Now, the result is that religion has gone in Europe. What is in its place? People are turning towards all kinds of figures which are very, very harmful and dangerous because there is no, uh, no, no, for the teenagers, there is none to idolize except, you know, the man who comes on the TV talk show. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a sad thing. At least, you know, when they were religious, there was the figure of Christ, if nothing else, you know, such a 
wonderful forgiveness, love, embodiment. But because they buried Christ under a mass of externalities, it got over. Same thing with Hinduism. Buried Shiva under a figure of asceticism which was external. Buried Krishna under a mass of, you know, um, external rituals and um, absurd Bhagavad Saptas where Bhagavad truth is never given. So that is how the priest class have finished religion. <laughs> and that's why I keep saying when the new age comes, priests, lawyers, doctors and policemen will be out. If they are still there, that means we are still far We're from anywhere. Yeah. They finished because they became intermediaries. And I'm afraid a similar thing happens again with, you know, the certain kind of neo-gurus. You know, they become like intermediaries, which is very dangerous. It's true. All that we need is to walk on the path together as, you know, it's a, such a wonderful journey. But how and many people want to follow these neo-gurus? Well, that's where I feel that... This it is will, the problem. Yes, so there will be a compulsion. Now, as he said, more and more this situation will arise. Unfortunately, through a painful period, which Europe is going through right now. I mean, what a chaos, simply because there is neither this nor that. Now, in America, it's still a young nation seeking and, you know, it's holding on to anything which appears fascinating. But fundamentalists are holding very strong. Right. But, you know, how long can you keep teaching people that, you know, the history of the world is 5,000 years old? I mean, a time is going to come. (laughs) If nothing else, this is uh, so beautifully in the, in Shobindo's vision of science. It it just cannot go for long. You cannot, you know, limit. Human consciousness is bound to advance. And yet in Kentucky, they built a creationist museum. Everywhere you see, (laughs) I still remember... You know, talking as, as a youngster, going to a, you know, people had taken me to a uh, Babaji, to a Pandit and like yeah. a guru. And uh, they just did the foolishness of introducing me, uh, saying he is from the Indian Air Force, a doctor, and uh, he is turned towards uh, Mother and Shurabindu. Now, you know, this man must have thought, oh, a big fish, Air Force doctor, he'll be very nice to me. So he made a comment that, oh, Shurabindo, he does the same thing again and again. I got furious. I told him, because of people like you, you know, this dress has lost its importance. You should just stop wearing this dress, have an humbling experience, go out, face the world, read what Madhra Shurabindo has said, meditate upon it, then come back. So all the disciples were so unhappy. What happened? What happened? I said, no, no, I'm going. And my friend who had taken me, I said, you didn't call me for this. I'm not going to take this nonsense. (laughs) So eventually I moved out. But look the kind of authorities they were. And who gave the authority? We gave the authority. You can't question. Now this is one of the big problems. You can't question the elders. You can't question the Pandit. He feels offended yeah, that's nonsense. This is nonsense. But, but there's an interesting story Achyut told me about Sanchez Sai Baba. Mm. That uh, I knew Dr. Sanyal very well. And Dr. Sanyal got Parkinson's. You know this, huh? Yes, yes. And he, mother told him, don't have any surgery. He went to America. I met him there in 62. And at that time, they were drilling through the head skull for Parkinson's. It didn't help him at all. He came back. Mother said to him, I can cure you, but you'll just get it again. (laughs) And so he started going around to all the gurus 
in India mm. to be healed. And finally he winds up at Satya Sai Baba. And you know what Sai Baba says to him? Why do you come to a 40-watt bulb when you have the sun? So you see, I'll just read some passage from Shirobindo. You know, I've also been writing about it. But the biggest resistance comes from the, a particular generation, hmm. which is still in command and control. A part of them likes it, that's the spiritual part. But then back all those shutters come back, and one is afraid. Look what Shirobindo writes. One is astonished at the position of the orthodox. They labor to deify everything that exists. Hindu society has certain arrangements and habits which are merely customary. There is no proof that they existed in ancient times, nor any reason why they should last into the future. It has other arrangements and habits for which textual authority can be quoted, but it is oftener the text of the modern Smritikaras than of Parashar and Manu. Our authority for them goes back to the last 500 years. I do not understand the logic which argues that because a thing has lasted for 500 years, it must be perpetuated through the aeons. Neither antiquity nor modernity can be the test of truth or the test of usefulness. Look at what power is there and what liberating. All the rishis do not belong to the past. The avatars still come. Revelation still continues. How he is liberating the truth of Hinduism. The avatars still come. Vedas are not a book. They were to be finished. Some claim that we must at any rate adhere to Manu and the Puranas. Whether because they are sacred or because they are national. Well, but if they are sacred... You must keep to the whole and not cherish isolated text while disregarding the body of your authority. You know, I had this problem where a very good uh, Christian couple came to me, Roman Catholic. And, um, the you know, they were going through a difficult period and as you know, divorce is a near impossibility. So, um, you know, they were contemplating ways and means to manipulate the, you know. <laughs> so, he came with a very strange request. The man who wanted to separate, he comes and tells me, please declare me that I am important. Why? Because that's one ground on which I can be separated. So, I was first of all very surprised because I had read the Bible and had deep regard, but I had not read the Old Testament till then. I had read the New Testament. I enjoyed it. A lot of spiritual stuff is there in it. So, he got me the Old Testament. Showed me all the things. I said, why you want separation? Showed me all the things that a woman should do to a man which are written there and she does not do. So, you know, uh, I was a little bit... Then he said, look, look, surely there must be some place where it is also written all the things that man should do to a woman, uh, you know, surely there. Now, you know, he hemmed and hawed and just... But I was curious. (laughs) So I found out (laughs) all the things that man also has to do to a woman. He is quietly, you know... So now, Shivindu is telling us, don't ever take a text in a partial form. You want your wife to be like Savitri and Sita. Are you Rama and, uh, you know, Satyavan? <laughs> First, deserve the Sita, then talk about. This is a very interesting joke about it. 
there is a girl from Bangladesh who came to ashram. Very wonderful girl. Open-hearted and, you know, like a child, she could go and talk to anybody. I still remember once she came, she used to stay downstairs to her home. And she came up just for to ask something and she saw me standing on a stool and cleaning the fans. So she looks at me and asks me a question. Ki, phir sadi karega? Mane, she asked me, will you ever marry again? I said, nah, baba, nah. <laughs> you know, direct. <laughs> this is what life becomes. <laughs> Doesn't know me well, but first thing she's asking. Then she goes and tells Pranabda once. What you are telling? You are behaving like the greatest Asura. And Dada loved her very much. Dada never got angry. She would she would smile. Bashan Bashan Bisit because he saw the heart. So she once went to Niroda and she tells uh, some jokingly about Savitri, then uh, he, he, she asked casually, uh, Niroda, oh, wait, just let me get the exact thing. Niroda asked her, um, ah, she asked Niroda, correct. She said, what Niroda, where is your Savitri? So, she said smilingly, why, I am your Savitri, jokingly, like, you know, in ashram atmosphere, people joke. So, Niroda also with this sense of humor, he says, what? Erokam Savitri, she is very dark and you know not, I mean she is good looking that way but okay, like dark and generally is not considered very good. So, so Niroda says, what? This kind Savitri. He says, oh, what else? Jaisa Satyavan versus Savitri. <laughs> As is Satyavan, so you get the Savitri. <laughs> I mean, amazing, you know, she when she became an ashram inmate, <laughs> there is a prosperity chit. So you have to fill and write your needs, you know, soap, toiletries, etc. So she goes and tells Manosda that, you know, I am giving chit for this, this item. Can I also ask for a boyfriend in the chit? <laughs> but amazing love for mother and Shirobindo. Very fine girl. I am just saying that, uh, you know, but if you go by custom, sistachar, and you know, these things would be scandalous. The way Niroda asked Shurabindu and how Shurabindu would reply with such sense of humor. Yes. So here we have that take the whole, not a part. You cannot pick and choose. You cannot say this is sacred and I will keep to it. That is less sacred and I will leave it alone. When you so treat your sacred authority, you are proving that to you it has no sacredness. Look, I mean, and it applies mm. also to Shurabindu and the mother. You can't say Ki, this part is from Shurabindu. Then take it in the totality, the total vision. You are juggling with truth. For you are pretending to consult Manu when you are really consulting your own opinions, preferences or interests. With a scathing light of sincerity, he is cutting our defenses. To recreate Manu entire in modern society is to ask Ganges to flow back to the Himalayas. <laughs> wow. Manu is no doubt national, but so is the animal sacrifice and the burnt offering. He says, if you really want to accept it, then are you going to accept this also? Because a thing is national of the past, it need not follow that it must be national of the future. It is stupid not to recognize altered conditions. We have similar apologies for the unintelligent preservation of mere customs. But... Various as are the lines of defense, 
Oh, look, this is Sri Aurobindo who uh, massacred the logic of, um, you know, um, who was that man? Archer. Mm. Who's, he wrote in defense of Hinduism. When Sri Aurobindo wrote in defense of Hinduism, when Archer pointed, you know, really demeaned it and brought out a lot of, you know, spoke about it in a very demeaning way. But at the same time, look at Sri Aurobindo. Now, when you take the totality, now Hindus do this very often. They take those things from Sri Aurobindo. But they don't take these things from Shurabindo. They do exactly the same thing. When he spoke about the evolution, I do not know any that is imperiously conclusive. Custom is shistachar, decorum, that which all well-bred and respectable people observe. But so were the customs of the far past that have been discontinued and if now revived would be severely discountenanced and in many cases penalized. You know what he is referring to? One of the things is polyandry. <laughs> when somebody asked Shirvindo, uh, you know, about polygamy and polyandry, he said these things have, uh, have nothing to do with, you know, a deeper or higher life. Polyandry has existed in India in the past. Uh, one woman marrying many, oh. referring to Draupdi. It was an accepted thing at that point of time. So he says, if you bring it now, the, it was a custom, it will be penalized. So, though it still exists well, in certain parts. In the U.S. is a big concern because of the Mormon people. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, this is one of the things. Because this he has spoken of in the evening talks. There would be many, there are many others. Even I am prepared to believe the future no less than the past prepares for us new modes of living which in the present would not escape the censure of the law. Is he referring to... You know, living in? Future is going to present modes of living which in the present will not be accepted by the law. I am like just, you know, how far he was seeing. It is the achar that makes the shist, not the shist who makes the achar. The achar is made by the rebel, the innovator, the man who is regarded in his own time as eccentric disreputable or immoral and now look whose example is giving as was Sri Krishna by Bhurishrava because he upset the old ways and the old standards in actual Mahabharata war I don't know whether they will show or not they have not even shown Bhurishrava hmm. even Sishupal he tells him why should you be respected you are a flirt you are this you are that all kinds of things against Krishna he says that you know the rebel like Sri Krishna broke free from old patterns of thought and gave a totally new outlook. Like, for instance, Arjuna says, if I kill, they, all my women will be, you know, all the women will have cool dharma, will be nursed and all this. Is, yes, that's what I want. Because uh, the subsequent uh, nationhood was um, by the seed of um, Uttara. Uttara's seed, that is Parikshit, was a blood of three great Kulas. So he actually wanted to break the Kulas. Clans. Tribe and clans. But Arjuna is afraid that how can, you know, clans and tribes be broken. Even till date in India there are many people who very strongly, you know, uh, don't accept that, you know, inter-caste marriages or inter-clan mm. marriages. But Sri Krishna broke that. Made uh, Arjuna run away with Subhadra. He himself kidnapped Rukmani. If you see those actions, it is scandalizing. So Bhurishava tells him, you are immoral. 
is there and Shobindra has an aphorism to it. That you know how always those who were uh, men with very far-reaching thought, their actions were very far-reaching, were regarded as rebels and not accepted by the society. Mm-hmm. Socrates is another example mm-hmm. that you have corrupted the youth of today. So you are asking me to meet that fate. <laughs> if, if you know. Custom may be better defended as ancestral and therefore cherishable. But if our ancestors had persistently held that view, our so cherished customs would never have come into being. Mm. Or more rationally, custom must be preserved because its long utility in the past argues a sovereign virtue for the preservation of society. Look, every logic Shobindo is taking up. But to all things there is a date and a limit. All long-continued customs have been sovereignly useful in their time, even totemism and polyandry. is actually bringing it. They were useful in their own time. Totemism was, you know, like today they call superstition, those um, hang this and, you know, if you hang a Nibu Mirchi, so, you know, evil forces won't come. There is totemism and many such things. We must not ignore the usefulness of the past, but we seek in preference a present and a future utility. Custom and and law. Utility. Utility. Yes. Custom and law. I'm just repeating, uh, I'm reading a little further because you know it's a very beautiful. Custom and law may then be altered. For each age it's Shastra. But we cannot argue straight off that it must be altered. Now he's taking the other point. Look how Srivindra's vast mind or even if alteration is necessary that it must be altered in a given direction one is repelled by the ignorant enthusiasm of social reformers so first he has shown the position of the orthodox now he is showing the stupidity of the social reformers their minds are usually a strange jumble of ill digested European notions very few of them know anything about Europe and even those who have visited it know it badly. See why Shurabindu had to come to UK. Because he knew what it means. <laughs> Thoroughly by first-hand experience. That's why there is a very funny article when he talks about European justice. He says, you know, a lot of people talk very highly. British justice, British justice. He says it's a wonderful show of justice. He talks about it. And the hypocrisy that is behind it. And how there is a need to show to others that we have been just. So, you know, how well he understood. But they will not allow things or ideas contrary to European notions to be anything but superstitious, barbarous, harmful and benighted. They will not suffer what is praised and practiced in Europe to be anything but rational and enlightened. They are more appreciative than Occidentals themselves of the strength, knowledge and enjoyment of Europe. So, you know, there were Indians, more than Europeans praise, they are busy praising that everything there is wonderful. Mm. So, they are blinder than the blindest and most self-sufficient Anglo-Saxon to its weakness, ignorance and misery. They are charmed by the fair front Europe presents to herself and the world. They are unwilling to discern any disease in the entrails any foulness in the rear. For the Europeans are as careful to conceal their social as their physical bodies 
and shrink with more horror from nakedness and indecorum than from the reality of evil. If they see the latter in themselves, they avoid their eyes crying, it is nothing or it is little. We are healthy, we are perfect, we are immortal. But the face and hands cannot always be covered and we see blotches. Look how sharp. Huh? What is this from? This from Shurvindo's uh, one of his writings on social reforms. From the human cycle? No, no. This is from, this is a separate essay which is now collected under, I think this is essay is Divine and Human. Mm-hmm. So then he, you know, goes on that, you know, each one has his sibboleths and at great length and... Uh, Again, like he talks about uh, the caste system and he talks about, you know, how it has to be broken because it has become jati. It is not now anymore that truth. Therefore, it has to be broken. And then he talks about standards that are universal. Aruj, if you get the time, can you throw some light on the real origin of how casteism... Yes, yes, right now. Now, now, then then continue. Okay, fine. Okay, after the break, we will take this. Yeah, yeah. we'll take it, we'll take it.